0: Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of PageCraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. At this time of deep division, I wanted to talk to my friend Nagy Cox, whose life mission is uniting humankind. Nagi is a Mars exploration engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, so she's got a broad perspective on Earth. She may be partly the model for Jessica Chastain's character in The Martian. She spends her vacations from NASA lecturing for the State Department around the world and getting people excited about science. We're gonna start today with a story about a quilt and a story about a car that exemplify who Nagy is. So where where did that quilt come from, Nagy?
1: So this quilt uh, was from very early when I started doing public talks for JPL, nice. and I was a very new speaker, and I didn't know that you should decline when they offer to put your name in the raffle. And so I was at a at a planetarium conference, one of my first out of state in South Carolina. And I never win anything, and I won the quilt. <laughs> That's so and cute. It's beautiful. And I took it to work, and I hung it at work, and I hung it in my office, and you know, because it isn't, it isn't for me, it's for the work that I'm lucky enough to represent. And after that, I learned when they say there's a raffle, to say, please don't put my name in it, I'm the speaker. Um, I see.
0: So it's more about that than, like, just because it might be something you don't necessarily want because it's, like, it's a cute
1: book. Oh, yeah, not at all. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's just, it's, it's just about, like. It's just that it should go to yeah. one of the participants, and it should, you know. It, it, uh, so I, I've done my, I do my best to kind of, like, use it for things where I'm, where it's, where I'm representing know, a team of people. And
0: that's why so I thought it would make
1: a, a good
0: backdrop. Yes. It does. I wanted to talk to my friend, Nagi, because what has it been, like 10, 10, 15, 12, somewhere, somewhere like that, some amount of like years. And, like, you know, not single digits. Not we're over <laughs> single digits. And I met Nagi because we were working at a women's self-defense training company. And, you know, I didn't, You when you learn meet somebody in a certain context, you don't really know a lot about them and I didn't know anything about her outside life except she was dedicated to this cause and really believed in empowering women and I was like okay cool sure me too whatever like that's all I knew about her and you know I always thought you were like so sunshiny and bright like you were always so like you brought such pleasant a pleasantness to the courses that we would do and I had no idea that you also happened to be this brilliant scientist. <laughs> um, until one day, Nikki had uh, the, or you still have it, right? The Roadster? Yes. One of the original, right? The very first Tesla Roadsters. The right. one built on the Elise, the Lotus body. Correct. And tell me why you let me drive it.
1: We, so my husband is a huge aficionado of electric vehicles um, because of what he thinks they can do for the planet. So, our motto as a couple is he says he'll save this planet, and I say I'll find others. <laughs> uh, so, we are, so, but that's that's kind of his passion is electric vehicles and being able to be sustainable for the environment without having to go back to horse and buggy. I love it. So it was very important to him that we take the step of supporting Tesla in their first hundred cars uh, because if they couldn't convince their investors that there were a hundred people who would sign up to get the Roadster sight unseen that, how would the company investors have believed that they should that there might be a larger market and then part of the mission was to let people drive it to let people experience it to let them see that that electric cars didn't have to be golf carts and to uh to to bring it to people personally so they could then realized that electric cars were real and a real possibility for the future. And this brand new company called Tesla might have a future. And so I think my husband dropped me off or picked me up from one of our uh, self-defense trainings in the car. And I didn't know that Heidi was a car person at the time until I saw her reaction to the (laughs) Tesla and said, of course you can drive it. That's why we have it here. And that's why we have it insured for guest drivers,
0: which is just amazing. I mean, so many people would buy something like that as their own status symbol. And like, I know when I've got a new car, I have not been excited to let anyone drive it. So <laughs> just the fact that, that that's the heart you guys came forward with, it, it, I just think is fantastic.
1: My husband called it evangelizing with a big E and a big yes. Z, or
0: love <laughs> 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 bump. I love it. I love it. I love that you guys do that. Well, one of the obviously main things I wanted to talk to you about today is, you know, being a woman in science and not just like any science, but literally rocket science. (laughs) So talk to me first about like what, when you were a little kid, what sparked your interest in science?
1: Well, what sparked my interest in space exploration? So, you know, since Heidi and I talked about having this conversation so many things have transpired that suddenly shifted kind of my thinking on what we would talk about given what's going on uh, with all of the the protests and the conversations about what it means to be um, of color. And so for me, my interest in space exploration started, well, it, it wasn't, it didn't start as space exploration it started with an awareness that we find ways to divide ourselves. I grew up in a Muslim household and very early on realized that there was a difference in the expectation of the boys and the girls in my family. My sister and I were expected to follow a certain path that was different than my two brothers. And, you know, as an example that came later, my brothers were sent to one middle school that was for math and science. And my sisters were expect, my sister and I were expected to attend a different middle school that was better in the arts and humanities. Uh, but even younger than that, I thought, you know, why does it matter if I'm a boy or a girl? What, what does that have to do with anything? And and so I I, I attribute that exposure to very young, um, the divisiveness that happens. Mm. And with that also came an accident of genes in that. So I'm full Indian. Uh, I was born in Bangalore, India, and my parents are Indian. But my mother happens to be very light-skinned. I take after her my brothers and my sister are much more Mm. dark-skinned because they take after my father. And so within our family, we had like this data pool of how you get treated based on whether you are visibly of color or not. Because I'm a woman of color, but it's hard to tell that my Mm -hmm. sister it's much more obvious and my brothers it's much more obvious but just to within one family have an experience of wait that happened to you i was just in the same library and that didn't happen to me right Mm. Um, where the difference um, was visibly uh, our skin color so that translated for me into once you become aware that People separate themselves. You start to see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. Gender, ethnicity, you know, what country you're from, what religion you are. And at the same time, as I was coming to an awareness of this, I also, uh, the second part of the Apollo program was happening. So this was in the the mid-1970s. And so I had on the one hand... an experience of how people divide themselves. But on the other hand, I could see on my television, on the news, in the newspapers, how when there was a moon landing, how people came together. And I was reminded of that just last year when we had the anniversary of the moon landing. Mm. And I happened to be speaking in Mexico for that anniversary. And people didn't say the United States landed on the moon. Mm. They said we landed on the moon. Wow. And so I saw space exploration as something that brought people together. Yeah.
0: That's pretty amazing that it's something that unified. It's like we looked at it as a human race. We landed on the moon, not one country or another.
1: Wow. And that's what got me interested and in space exploration. Uh, and you know how melodramatic teenagers are, right? <clears throat> I didn't want to do something just for my, fa- for my family or for my city or even my country. No, I wanted to do something for all humankind. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was the space program. And so I've, I've actually never wanted to work anywhere other than jpl here in than nasa's jet propulsion laboratory here in california so you targeted as your way to jpl the air force i did and that was because again the the financial resources in the family Mm -hmm. were intended for the boys to go to college and so i had decided that you know, I, I was never particularly. I, actually, I was. I, I the. I was never interested in being an astronaut uh, because I, at the t- I can totally understand why this is different for, um, uh, for a youth growing up now. But at the time that I was in the my teenage years, the astronauts were stuck in Earth orbit, and. uh, There was also a television show on at the time called Cosmos. Yes. Uh, Carl Sagan. I loved that show so much. And, you know, the the tie between media and science is so strong. Media and innovation and and engineering. Uh, Like many, many of my contemporaries, uh, we were motivated by amazing works of entertainment that inspired us and on cosmos is where i realized that before we send people we send robots Mm -hmm. so if you really wanted to go where no one has gone before that would be the robots and hence my interest in robotic exploration to really see places for the first time and at the at that time there was literally only one place on the planet that was the center for robotic exploration of the solar system and that was the jet propulsion laboratory in pastina california yeah cosmos talked about jpl all the time Yep. and at the end of cosmos every sunday night at the end of cosmos it would say carl sagan cornell university Uh ah So where so did
0: decided,
1: you go? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go to Cornell University, uh, which I did. And I was fortunate enough to get an Air Force scholarship. Um, and that was at the time that they were just beginning to admit women to ROTC scholarships and to the academies. So it ended up being a choice for me between the Air Force Academy and Cornell. Wow.
0: Wow. How was that to be a woman? I imagine a lot of the guys weren't that excited to have women in the ROTC.
1: That, that is true. Um, it, I think it was much more pronounced at the academies. Mm-hmm. And had I gone to the Air Force Academy, I think uh, you know, the first graduating class of women from the Air Force Academy, I believe was in 1976. Mm. And so I was applying for scholarships in 1981, 1982. And so they, they, were, they were at the stage where it was difficult to get candidates. Parents didn't okay. want their daughters to go. And so there was, um, it was like affirmative action in the sense that if you showed interest, they were very anxious to make sure that you had a chance if you met the minimum standards. Um, but in my case, I had just come from a restrictive household. So I was not particularly interested in being told how to fold my socks at 6'8". Yeah,
0: I can imagine. So Cornell it was.
1: So Cornell it was, yes. So, But then
0: when you afterwards were in the Air Force, did you did you fly or were you on the...
1: I did not because again I had a one-track mind and I That's was what interested I thought, in yeah. space operations. Uh, I did work in my first job as because I was I got a psychology degree and an engineering degree. Wow! So actually, my first job in the Air Force was as a psychologist. Oh wow! So I was involved in F sixteen aircrew training. And, uh, and then, you know, I said to the Air Force that, "Wait, you spent all this money on my engineering degree. Don't you want me to be an engineer doing space stuff?" And they said, "Why, yes. Yes, we do. That makes sense." And uh, so I was able to transfer into U.S. Space Command, which apparently now has a different meaning, because it's the original — now I have to say, I'm in the, I was in the original U.S. Space Force. Yes. Because that's what U.S. Space Command was and currently is. Okay. Uh, and it was that that space experience, that operational space experience at NORAD, that allowed me to get my job at JPL. Because I loved the Air Force; I absolutely did. Duty, honor, country. It was amazing. Um, but I had a a goal of getting to JPL, so yes. I, I left after six years of active duty.
0: Wow. What, what, would, what would you say was the biggest challenge you faced during your time at NORAD and in the Air Force? Uh,
1: well, I was frequently the only woman. And um, like in my crew, Charlie crew at NORAD, uh, Cheyenne Mountain, I was not only the only woman, but I was also the, the, my crew was, it was called, it was a purple assignment where purple means it's multi-service. So I was with Marines and Army and Navy, and and uh, uh, so I was the only woman, and it was a very small percentage of Air Force folks. And awesome. uh, my graduate school, I was also the only, where I was getting a master's degree at the Air Force Institute of Technology, I was again the only woman in my class, um, uh, which my, my major of uh, space operations, and at that time there were about 35 of us, but... Having returned to my uh, graduate school in the in the last few years, I noticed that I see more women in the lobby now than the whole time I was there. So uh, there's been a lot of progress and that's great.
0: So how did you make the jump then to JPL, your your long
1: goal? Ah, well, um, I, I did. I was not successful on my first attempt which is not surprising because I, I really didn't know anything about applying for a job, right? When you leave, they, when I left Cornell, I, I, was, I had signed on the dotted line. I was uh, obligated to at least four years in the Air Force, so there was a job right. waiting for me. And so when I decided I was going to leave the Air Force and um, apply to JPL, I I went through the front door, right? I sent my resume to HR and... And you know, nothing happened. Like not even a rejection letter. Wow. And, and it it was just it was just the lesson that we all know now, right? Yeah. Where it's who you know, who you know. And, and the connections and, and someone who can vouch for you as more than a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Right. As someone who can who can talk about your skills as a person and that uh, and and so I didn't I did not successfully Get to JPL in the first try. I went to Northern California and had a plan of uh, working for a defense contractor that um, also had connections to NASA in Houston. And so I said, okay, this will, you know, I'll just do a double hop and I'll start working for them and then I'll transfer to their civilian space program. And then from there, I'll, you know, work for Houston, hopefully, and then figure out a way to get to JPL. Um, but I was lucky in that, that time frame. I unexpectedly stumbled upon some connections that gave me a personal connection to someone at JPL, who uh, vouched for me and um, made it possible for me to open the door. And, and then I was able to get an interview and, and there's nothing like getting that phone call Ugh, that I can't even everything imagine. you've always wanted.
0: What was that like? What was your first day when you walked through those doors, your very first day? Like, what was
1: that like? You know, it when when you are handed the job you wanted since you were 14 <laughs> and it's like it's it was it was incredible. The, you know, part of what made me realize that the Air Force wasn't going to be the place for me is at one point I was I was working on my workstation, and behind me were four guys, four of my crewmates, who were animatedly talking about the art of warfare and weapons systems, and what do you and and what was the right way to approach conflicts. And as I was listening to them, I thought, this is not me. Mm. I'm interested in space exploration as opposed to space defense. And that's when I knew, that was the moment that I knew that I needed to take action to get to JPL. And when I got there, one of the things I remember saying to my husband the, the first day, because um, uh, he was still in Northern California, was even the walls are interesting. all of the buildings that I walked into because, you know, it wasn't quite the security badge access, everything that we have now, but everywhere I walked at JPL, there were posters on the wall. There were, there were date, there was data, there were pictures, everything about the place was interesting. And I thought I'm home. I can spend a lifetime here, a professional lifetime, and it will never be the same because every day literally brings more new information from our space exploration. And it it really hasn't changed that much in 25 years that I've been there. And I was actually thinking about that because yesterday was the first day in three months that I was able to go back on lab and I was surprised at how misty eyed I got. Oh, I can, I can totally believe that.
2: Yeah.
0: That's so then you're at your dream job. Um, what, when does that, when, when the Mars lander project comes up, like what are they like, Hey Niggy, will you please do this? Or was it something you had
1: to lobby for or Ah, well, one of the things about small companies, well, it's smaller than the Air Force, right? Air Force had 2 million people, and JPL has 5,000, and most of us are here in Pasadena, so you get to know each other. So my first flight project, you never forget your first flight project, uh, my first mission was the Galileo Mission to Jupiter, and it was the first uh, robotic exploration of a gas giant, an orbiter, and it was amazing But the people you work with, what what ends up happening is they might depart for another mission, and then they they say, hey, you know, we we need you over here on this Mars mission, and you and I and usually say, no, 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 I'm happy where I am, and they say, no, 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 you need to come over here, right? Um, And and so that was that was how I I started I started working in in Mars. There's a, the cultures are very different here at JPL for outer solar system exploration versus inner solar system. So there's earth orbiters and then there, we are the deep space. And then those of us like myself, whose career has been entirely in deep space, I've also done inner solar system and outer solar system. But right now, you know, they're just like, I was trying to work on other missions, uh, but I inevitably got pulled back because there are just, not enough people on the planet, literally, who have Mars surface operations experience that eventually they just come find you. Like, you know, if you're you're not working the next rover right now, it's, you know, we've gone after everybody on lab who has Mars experience because there just aren't enough people. So once a Martian, you're, you know, kind (laughs) of always a Martian. I love that.
0: What's, I mean, what's your, what's your favorite thing or what, like what discovery of like through the work that you've seen, like what surprised you about Mars?
1: So for me, one of the the things that I like the, the best about my job is coming in each morning and seeing pictures that have never been seen before by, by any of us. It's not that we're seeing them, that JPLers are seeing them first because they literally are available on the website for everyone. And in fact, you know, I, if I'm looking at at them on my phone, I'm looking at the public website. So it's not that, Oh, we get to see pictures first. That's not that. it's that we, all of us collectively, I I start my morning the same way. I start my earth morning the same way any uh, earthling could choose to that. If you have internet access is to go to the JPL website and see the new Uh, images that came down. Um, So it's about the exploration, but it's also about the people, right? And being there yesterday when the buildings are all there. And in fact, I walked into the Curiosity Operations room yesterday and I was like, you know, this really is a conference room with screens without the rest of us, without the people. So, I, you know, you see JPL without the people and, um, you know, and watching SpaceX and their launch. Again, it, the buildings are, built, are just buildings without the people there.
0: Yeah, they might have interesting walls, but they're still just buildings. Yep. That sounds like an amazing place to work. And, and I'm assuming that you have not experienced the kind of discrimination or issues so much there or, or have you?
1: It is. It is certainly true that that for me the contrast between the air force, so the military, is where uh, you know I have my stories, just like everyone does, of of the the gender incidents that happened, and also I was you know separated in time. I was younger. Um, I, I was younger, and and you know I didn't quite, you know I I I like many young women, I thought. Things happened only to women who looked like cover girls and had blonde hair and fit a certain stereotype. And, and, and I thought, oh, you know, it's based on uh, that, that uh, harassment is based on how you look mm. and uh, rather than being about power. Um, mm. So I, uh, uh, I went through my fair share of Me Too moments. I would not call them incidents. Uh, I had my moments. Um, and uh, was fortunate that that I was so surprised when they happened that I confronted them. Um, and, but at JPL, you know, at NASA, it has definitely been different. There, I've not personally experienced very much in the way of, of, certainly not in the category of sexual harassment. But I've been there long enough that we have definitely had, that I have many stories of just like any field, any STEM field of the things women go through to learn how to be heard mm. as a group, as individuals. Um, right before launch can be very high stress and sure. engineers don't often, you know, engineers sometimes aren't, their, their social skills may not be their strongest suit at the, uh, you know, uh, and then when you get close to launch and it's, very 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 tense that um you know we say we always say that people you go to your kind of your top three skills and 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 social skills are not always among those right. um so as things as it gets more heated we the women have to make sure that we get heard and sometimes and mentorship that's what matters there was mm. uh, there was a time early on one of the missions where um you know we were each individually kind of experiencing that um, you know that collectively tempers were rising, and so there was a lot more yelling in conference rooms and a lot more vocal and and finally, we realized that you know I started to hear that there were that we were all experiencing similar things, and our chief engineer, who was a, a woman at the time, she and I gathered some of our younger engineers. Younger women, female engineers, and we just sat we we just we shared our stories mm. and once we realized that we were all experiencing being kind of shouted down a bit that the key was for us to that that, that we we once we knew that it was happening to to uh, multiple of us, that was all it took. Then we said, "Hey, you know this is taxpayer money, this is a billion dollar rover." It's, it's the guys aren't right just because they're guys and we have a responsibility to speak up. And now that we know where it's a shared experience, um, that's what happened is we stopped being quiet. We, we tried not to, you know, yell. <laughs> there are other ways to resolve things, but we, we definitely, um, after our collective uh, uh, sharing and, and that's, a, that's a lesson that I took to heart is that no matter what your, there are environments in which it's, you know, there's much more actual sexual harassment, right? And yeah. real me too kind of incidences. But even in the more, um, the less harassment settings and more, uh, you know, getting used to working together, that it makes all the difference if you share your experiences and talk to each other and that seem that mentoring and it's not even mentoring like sitting down one-on-one just looking out for each other made has made a huge difference that's amazing
0: i love that i love that you you that you guys went to the data of what was (laughs) happening for the women on the team and and found a way to solve it i think that's that's not um not that usual um i have a friend i have another friend who's um a veterinarian and very high, you know, it's just like she, she's a faculty member of um, of a teaching university, and she said that half the time she realized that the the men who ran her faculty were never listening to her. So she partnered with a a guy that was her colleague who was very cool, and they did an experiment where she would have an idea, and it would get ignored. So she would tell him, and then he would say it, and it would be praised and we should adopt this and what a good idea and and he would always then go that's what she just said half an hour ago right and it just was like this continual like listen to the women too you know
1: and i do think the the concept of the the double bind um definitely exists and i was reading uh reading about that again the other day where you know the same if you're if you're If you're too warm and caring and you distribute kind of the you exhibit kind of the 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 feminine traits oh well then you're uh, you know you're you could potentially be seen as soft and weak, right but mm-hmm. then if you are on but then if you exhibit the traits of being decisive and authoritative, oh well, then you're too pushy and mm-hmm. you know so what they call the double bind I, I would say that that and, and you know, not not specifically JPL or not specifically NASA, because you know we've all been at conferences, we've all been in sure. meetings with, uh, you know. And I, I would say that's more that's been more my experience in kind of life in general, including the philanthropic areas that I've worked in. Is you know, you're either too serious or you're too you know the the yeah. double, I think the double bind is very is um is very uh captures a lot of the the challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: can't, there's a very fine line. You can't there's no there's no right answer most of the time. Um how
1: did you get an asteroid named after you? Oh, how did I get I was so I was so surprised. I'm still so surprised. I was in Italy. Uh I do when I when my vacation permits I on some of my Vacations, I will uh, travel for the US State Department and give uh, lectures um, because they sometimes want to bring in speakers that are less controversial, maybe, than politics. And they just want to, you know, kind of rah rah what, what America does. And, and so they look for some of the space exploration stories. And so I was in Italy and I was outside of, uh, I was in Pistoia, outside of Florence. At a library there, and I was uh, I was speaking at a library, and I was just giving a, a talk on the Mars rovers, and I did not know <laughs> that in the audience were three astronomers from a local uh, a local uh, astronomical observatory that actually was the home of the most prolific asteroid hunter in the world, who is a woman. Um, And they had just, in in the cycle of first you would observe an asteroid, you have to observe it for like three years to to get enough observations to confirm that it's an asteroid. Then you go through this process of getting the asteroid, um, getting its number, et cetera. Then some years later, you get the opportunity to name it. Oh, my gosh. I think they were just at that stage when they they came to hear the lecture. And so I talked about the rovers and afterwards they rushed up to the stage and said, we're going to name an asteroid after you. <laughs> and I said, and I thought, wait, I, I didn't even really register it. I said, I said, I remember saying, I remember thinking, what? And then I said, all, I, I just said, I'm so glad you enjoyed the talk, right? And <laughs> I, I started answering all the other questions there were and I didn't think anything more of it. Until, like, it happened a year later when they sent me the naming plaque. Um, oh my so, I, 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 you know, it's, 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 it has my name on it, but it, it's, it's, again, it was this the rover stories that yeah. were powerful. Have you seen it? Have you been able to look through stuff um, and see? I have. It's very difficult. It's basically you can't see it with the naked eye, but well, I yeah, but like... to see, yes, through, I mean, sorry, not the naked eye, even through telescopes. Um, but I have uh, I have uh, seen observations of it, and it's it's quite remarkable. That's amazing.
0: Very cool. You're the only person I know that has oh. an asteroid <laughs> named after them. So um, yeah, you. Uh, so Human Rights Watch is your your cause. How did you get involved mm-hmm. with
1: them? Human Rights Watch is probably the philanthropic organization that I have the most respect for. And when when people ask me who my heroes are, right, they expect me to say someone like, you know, a figure out of math or science. And I actually say my heroes are the researchers at human rights watch who who go into harm's way. Uh, You know, again, the melodramatic streak in me, the the logo for H.R.W. is tyranny has a witness. Right. That that it's it was the path not taken for me mm-hmm. Had I, I believe that I would have been in working in human rights and specifically women's rights if I had not taken the path that I did. Um, you know, when my husband says to me, how was your day, even on the bad days, I will say, I, you know, on the days that don't go as well, I'll say to him, well, let's think about this. I didn't spend four hours of my day carrying water like 70% of the women in Africa do, right? We have a responsibility to our, our fellow women to remember how very, very fortunate we are. I mean, I sit where I do where I am because of an accident of birth, Yes, an accident of birth. If my, my father promised my grandmother that he would take my mother back to India, that didn't happen. Mm. If that had, I would have grown up in a very different environment yeah. in terms of what women are, um, you know, what's acceptable. And and that was back, you know, I'm talking about in the the 70s and the 80s. So they, they seem to me, they go hand in hand. The stories Mm -hmm. of exploration are about us saying we are, as we have, we still have to be a species that is worth saving. Mm -hmm. Right. And while we look for other planets and we explore and we try to open up space, to exploration both human and robotic. We there we're just we're just one aspect of, of how civilization needs to mature. Yeah. Right. So that we're, we're you know we have people have to be have I, I hope that space exploration brings out our better selves. Yes. Um, I,
0: I I love that and I I feel like you know when I used to teach at Marlborough school here in Los Angeles and elite girls high school. Um, I would, you know, these are all the girls of like children of the wealthiest people here in town and, you know, the stars and famous people. And, you know, so they, they have everything. And I would tell them that I would sit down in class with them and say, you are here because of an accident of birth. Like you didn't earn this. You just, you've been blessed with it. Please do something good with it. Like you, you know, and we would read stories about women, in, in, in watch documentaries about women in other parts of the world and other countries. And, you know, I just really wanted to engage them to do exactly the kind of thing you're doing. And if you've got all of those resources and that, those smarts and I, that, like, let's do something good with it.
1: And so, and there, there's nothing about borders that impacts brain power, right? right. Potential. Um, when I, you know, get invited to, I got invited to speak in Pakistan and in Jordan and, you know, places that, especially Pakistan, that was a, you know, a bit on the risky side. Mm. And and I think, and yet, y- you think, you know, how much difference can you make in, in, in one lecture? But it wasn't, uh, in a few lectures, but it wasn't me. It was enabling the cultural exchange that the embassy promotes. And to to try to say that you have just as much potential as a young woman in rural Pakistan and because people have a tendency to feel forgotten when they are uh, in a rural environment, when they are, when they, when, you know, they might not have the internet resources that their city brethren do. It's, and, and so I'm on the advisory committee for the Women's Rights Division at, at, at HRW. And again, it's, it just, I can't see not doing it. Because you got, they fight the global fight, mm-hmm. and then the the local self defense classes are about you know sixteen women at a time. We there's so many challenges facing the planet, and you can't do it with any one country solving things. But you also can't do it with half the population, right? A hundred percent of the brainpower of the planet to uh, to 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 help us solve the challenges. Yes,
0: and and I just think. Even seeing you you know as a woman from wherever I might be from, if I 'm in a small village and then I see you speak, you know just just having the model and seeing it once can sometimes be enough for uh, to spark that change, and a girl to realize wait i can there is something else possible and I can reach for it so
1: and sometimes that's hard to it you know you it's easy to think is how is that true right mm-hmm. that and I remember the moment for me, where I, I think I was speaking at the um, Ruben H. Fleet uh, Museum in San Diego, and again was a pretty young speaker at the time. And I remember I was answering a bunch of questions after the 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 talk, like I couldn't move my leg, uh, just to turn. And I and I and I was like, why can't I move my leg, right? And I looked down, and there was this like three-year-old girl oh. who was wrapped around my lower leg, like just wrapped around my leg, hugging me. Wow. And of course, i knelt down to talk to her. But again, as a young speaker, I thought, what did I just say? Yeah. In the last hour? And, and that's when I realized that it wasn't anything I said. And it wasn't me. It was some it was anyone it could have been any person standing up there now in this case i do think it mattered that it was a woman standing up there and talking about enjoying my job and enjoying being a part of a team that worked on something together wow. and and saying work can be fun and be meaningful and i and i'm and i'm sure because what else would have penetrated and yeah. yet in an hour it was enough to have made this kind of hard-to-substantiate impact on this young child. Wow. And, and I thought, wow. Wow. I still think, wow.
0: I know. It's like I wish we could track her down, you know, when she's yeah. college age and just find out, like, what, ha- what, what path did she take? But. Right. So as a judge for the Entertainment Industries Council of Depiction of STEM in movies and TV, what do you look for? Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, I'm sure I'm biased by the fact that my that my generation at JPL, we were all inspired by Cosmos, Star Trek or Star Wars. Yes. The generation before me, if I go into the offices of the folks who got to who, who were in their later career when I got to JPL, almost all of them or many of them had Chelsea Bonestall paintings in their office. So, uh, or magazine covers from, uh, magazines that talked about space exploration, but it was an artist. So in each of those cases, we were influenced by the entertainment industry, by art. And so what I, I look for things that will have that kind of an impact, you know, of course, there, there, are, there are movies and shows that, that it's just hard to suspend your disbelief because the science is just so wrong, right? Just so wrong <laughs> that it's hard to ignore that, right? But what's much more important is, is the story compelling enough that people from all walks of life in all kinds of countries will see themselves in the story? Even in ways you don't expect. Big Bang Theory is, you know, for many, many years was the most popular television show in the whole world. And who knew that, yes, you know, their their aspects of it were not quite that bad as they depict. (laughs) But um, so many kids around the world saw themselves in Mm. one of the characters. And Star Trek has a permanent exhibit at the Smithsonian because, at the Air and Space Museum, because of the amount of scientists and engineers that were inspired by that show. And and your industry has the power to shape the future by inspiring kids to be whatever they want, STEM or not STEM, just to show them a future that they are a part of. So that's what I looked for, was something that would stay with the person who watched it. So last question, before I open it up to Q&A,
0: what would you you say to your 10, 13 year old self? What what do you wish you'd known as a young girl?
1: Oh gosh, what do I wish I had known? the 13-year-old self thought to my, you know, I remember thinking, wow, what's the world going to be like in the year 2000? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to be 35, right? And, and that I would want to tell her that old is not old, right? That, that what I wish everybody would know, and, and I mean, I think about this now, right? Is I turn 55 um, uh, during quarantine here. And I still feel, I mean, I get that not everything works quite the way it used to, right? And, um, but I still feel like I'm 30, right? Uh, You know, 20, learned a lot, good to be not, you know, learned a lot. Um, But but that once I realized that apparently, no matter what age I get to be, I'm going to mentally feel like I'm 30 or 35. Mm-hmm. like why would i stop learning why would i stop why would i think oh i'm at the end of my career cuz i'm not and and now when i look at at women who are in their 70s or their 80s or their 90s right people we tend to look right over they mm-hmm. always say women become invisible in mm-hmm. middle age right and in older age and people, we look right over because they're, you know, they're, they're all gray-haired. And now I look and go, I bet you still feel like you're 35. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the ability to see people for who they are, regardless of their age, I guess that's what I would want to tell my 13-year-old self is that it doesn't stop right that yeah. you don't have to think oh well but i'm going to be 40 and you know then everything's carved in stone right nice. that that there's a lot of discussion even right now about seeing people for who they are regardless of their skin color regardless of their ethnicity and regardless of their gender that is also true of their age mm mm-hmm. Right. And I don't just say that because now I'm 55. I'm actually trying to project forward to the women who have so much to give and so many stories to tell, but they're 85. Yeah. And so no one thinks to ask them, other than, Grandma, tell me some stories. As opposed to, what was your professional experience? Yeah. Which
0: is insane because they're like repositories of all this information. And we're just like, yeah.
1: So I would want to tell her that life is longer than you think hmm. and more fun than you think and define success for yourself. You don't have to be, and, and it isn't always about, it isn't at all about vertical ambition, right? We tend to define success as how high up did you go? Yeah. We all have the ability to define success for ourselves and it isn't always. It isn't always doing what other people think you should do, right? You only get one life. That's right. I love
0: that. That's wonderful. A wonderful note to open up on, Elira.
3: Um, I'm actually curious. Hi. Uh, thank you for talking to us. First of all, this is amazing. Um, I'm curious as to what your relationship with your parents. Um, is like now with regards um, to your brothers, because uh, yeah. I I also have a, a Muslim father, and I remember those similar feelings. Um, I I grew up in the Soviet Union, and you know there was a little bit more of a shift to gender equality and secularism when I grew up. But at the same time, I just you speaking about. I'm expecting the boys to go to math and science school and the girls get to go to the other school it's it just sounds so familiar and I'm always like questioning like oh how's that relationship going to change once I like reach success that you know is tangible and people write about about it in, a, in an article and I'm wondering if you have any
1: may I ask where I in the that? Soviet Union
3: uh, Uzbekistan
1: I, uh, I traveled um, last year in, in Russia uh, oh, wow. for the State Department. Um, so um, my, my mother was my rock from day one. She passed away four years ago. And uh, we, were, we were always very, very close. Um, you know, she, would, she frequently would say, I don't understand what you do, but I'm so proud of you. Right, Um, uh, that I heard that from her a lot. (laughs) My father and I remained um, remained estranged. It wasn't because um, I I tried. I don't want to say time heals all things because sometimes you know it it. He wasn't kind of interested in healing things. But one of the things that did kind of work out was his memory got worse. And so he forgot that he wasn't supportive. And so I thought that was kind of handy. He remembered, the way he remembered his life, he was supportive. And I thought, well, okay, you know, as you get older, you realize that your parents were, you know, that, that your parents are busy scarring you for life when they're like in their 40s, right? And, and what do any of us know when we're like in our 40s, right? Everybody is just doing the best they can. And, and so I know more about my father's upbringings and the challenges that he had in his family life. And, and so, you're, you know, I was certainly willing to get past it. And it was, it was fine <laughs> that he remembered being supported. I was like, OK, well, that's not how it happened, but that's fine for now. And so he was uh, he was proud of me. He, he, you know, still would have preferred that I follow the more traditional path. Um, but also um, in societies that kind of value external indicators of success, it, it helps when you're, you know, a gainfully employed engineer or you're a gainfully employed doctor or whatever. Um, so things get muddled as time goes on, and you can use that muddling to to create a more amicable relationship.
0: Wow, Betsy, and then Karina,
2: me and Elvira are well. She's created, and I'm producing some um, a. A script, a TV show that takes place in space, and the women well, not space, but JPL and NASA and all of that and they're astronauts. And we are a bit nervous because space force has just come out. Oh, but yeah. I think that's saying, I think that's a glorified version, and it wasn't very successful. What would you want to see? Huh. What would I want to see of,
1: in a show women. about space and a
0: women. show a show about women in charge of the space program operations?
1: You know, it's interesting. Well, I'm, I'm. Fair, kind of well. One's an astronaut. Two are
0: astronauts. I need to say I've read the script and it's freaking hilarious. So okay, thank you. <laughs> it's about it's about women women in mission control and just yeah. a, a lot of the
3: themes that you discussed today i'm, I'm taking so many notes because oh, you, everything you're saying is like notes. gold <laughs> um but it's it's just about that uh that need to find uh well female camaraderie have- uh to to be able to like everybody lift each other up together and um Discover a voice, so that's the theme of the show. All right, I'm
1: gonna well, and I'm off. I'm a little I'm a little biased by you know the mo- uh, the movie The Martian is one of the ones that we really like, and it's primarily because there are no aliens, right? It's such a good movie without aliens, right? It shows how hard Mars is, but as part of the preparation for that, um, I was I was at work one day. I was I was on duty for the rover. I was uh, the mission lead that day. And I got this phone call that said um, uh, Jessica Chastain was on lab uh, doing prep work for the Martian. And um, they, were, they, they were gathering three or four people who were gonna have lunch for, with her. And they said, um, you know, Nagi, come down. And I said, I can't, I'm sorry, I'm on duty. And I hung up. And then I got a call back a few minutes later going, no, no, that was not a request, right? <laughs> you need to come down and talk to her. Because they were looking for someone her character in the Martian, uh, so they were looking for someone who had a Mars operations experience, robotic Mars operation experience and who was mil- ex-military and that that was me that was only I was the only one who fit that bill um, and so we had the opportunity to talk with her and some of her uh, folks who were with her and eventually she went to JSC and and spent time with one of the astronauts there who is who they you know her character is 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 modeled after somewhat, um, but what I was struck by that was her conversation about how do you convey the 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 multi layeredness of the size of the team that's involved. Right. We were we were very pleased that the Martian paid attention. You know that JPL got some airtime, not just being JPL so much as the robotics side, and. What I would like to see shown, which it sounds like is already a part of your script, is, is again, these are the things that motivate kids. And for them to see um, that there are ways to be a part of the space program other than in addition to being an astronaut, right? Um, so that they can see themselves. If you're someplace like Israel, right? And they've had one or two astronauts from the entire country during the entire space age. The kids who are interested in space, they, they recognize the challenge of those odds. And one of the things that I like about telling the stories is they come away with, oh, there's mission control, there are robots there they don't realize that like jpl has an entire team that does digital visualization we have historians we have journalists we have artists we have lawyers we have financial folks that i would ask you know i would ask that your cast or not your cast that your characters whether they're extras or not be convey that like anything else There's, there, there's a, there's room for all kinds of skill sets. So one of the things about a show about mission control is uh, at with astronauts and mission controllers is hopefully they see that if exploration is your passion, if science, that, that there are so many ways to contribute, including being an artist, including being a reporter, right? That that there's room for all kinds of skill sets. So diversity in the positions. That's fantastic.
0: Karina, what were you going to say?
2: I'm going to start. I'm kind of uh, coming from the same side as Elvira is coming. I'm a writer and a director, and I'm 50, and I'm still trying to have my big break. (laughs) it's it's i want to make a story about you know emotional intelligence versus just computational intelligence as i call it right right and um i would like to like you already said a couple of things um and i don't know if you want to add some more because it interests me i think the dynamic between um you know the men and women right now and it's been the me too movement it was like very interesting and uh, on top of being a filmmaker i actually just graduated from law school as a mediator so i'm that's my passion as a filmmaker it was always my passion how do we find a dialogue with the other side instead of having a conflict i like what you said about borders i always said like borders are actually a point of contact not a point of division right right Um,
1: I think that your stories now have, especially, so, you know, the landscape has changed for everyone. Before, um, I was even thinking about when I talked to to, uh, kids who are interested in being astronauts, one of the things we would spend the most time on is the fact that early on, you know, as you know, what they looked for in astronauts, I have a friend who's on the committee now, um, was kind of the test pilot experience and the go yeah. it alone, whereas now a, a very big component of this that I can, I, I was thinking I'll be able to explain this. It'll be so different when I explain this now, if I start speaking again, that then before the pandemic is that they look for expedition experience, yes. right? Yes. Meaning if you're in, you know, if you're on your way to Mars and it takes seven to nine months to get there, uh, I used to have to try to tell people to to picture that you are in this enclosed space for months at a time with with a small group of people and thus they were looking for people who had experience in Antarctica, people who had experience on submarines. You had to be able to demonstrate that you could function in an isolated environment, yeah. with a small group of people. <laughs> and now I feel like we can all apply to be astronauts <laughs> because we've all demonstrated. <laughs> in fact, there were jokes going around, uh, going around JPL about how, how much this was like a space mission because for the first few weeks, we were at home in our houses, And we were only allowed to leave for resupply missions to the grocery store. And we had to do daily exercise to keep up our muscles, right? And I was like, wow, it's like we're all on the space station, right? So I think stories that talk about the isolation of human exploration, whether it's deep sea or deep space or the polar regions, are are now going to have an affinity for people because they have some. Everyone everyone has a small experience with that now. Wow! And I feel like saying, everybody, write it down on your astronaut applications, expedition <laughs> experience. Quarantine. 2020. right? Quarantine. I just heard uh, a speaker
0: from who's on the space station right now talk about that. That's one of the things they look they look for do you play well with others? Because Absolutely. it's such a team yeah. thing. And, and I thought, well, that's so interesting. Because yeah, like, that's not what I thought of when I thought of astronaut skills when I, you right. know, when I was a little kid. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. If I may, do you have any, like, do they train you in like emotional intelligence skills? A genius is not anymore just someone who can have like this power of computation right of like high speed mathematical skills it's for me like right now someone who's truly a genius is someone who has the computational power but also the capacity of connecting with others.
1: That is so true when I, well, I, you know, I frequently get asked, okay, how, you know, if you want to work for NASA, what, you know, what kind of background do you need? And one of the things that I, I, I say deliberately kind of for the shock effect is I say, look, I can get a straight A student from Caltech or MIT or yeah. Stanford anytime I want, right? That's not what we need. We need Sorry. people who can, we need, we need, we look for our ability in our employees to work together. These machines are so complicated. They're so complicated that it's no longer one person, you know, it's never, at this stage, it's never one person is sitting in a cubicle, right? (laughs) And programming. It's, it just, I, you know, it doesn't matter what your GPA is if you can't work in a team. And yes, our, you know, we have the same kind of corporate training that any organization does, of uh, you know in our in our training programs for communication skills etc., but specifically for the folks who are part of the crews, like you know the the flight team for the Curiosity rover or the flight team for Spirit and Opportunity, those um, or any team, there there is training specifically for um, working together as part of a crew, right and. And the, that, that's part of the reason that when we land on Mars, um, and I talk about this a bit in my TED Talk, when we, when we land on Mars, the first 90 sols where we're all together, the first 90 days where we're all working together is so important before we disperse and start working remotely, um, you know, which again has a different meaning now, is you need that time together to bond, to learn to work as a team. I just also wanted
3: to uh, comment that, like, my biggest takeaway is when you mentioned, like, we went to the moon versus uh, the United States went to the moon because just uh, having grown up in the Soviet Union, uh, like, I saw both sides of, like, the thing that they talked about in the Soviet Union was like, oh, we put the first man in space, you know, and they just happened to go to the moon first and then coming here, the narrative is like, oh, we went to the moon first. Yeah, they just, like, like <laughs> helped us put the first man in space, but we did, like, the thing that really matters. And just to hear you talk about, like, how they talk about it in Mexico, I sometimes forget that there's, like, other countries in the world, uh, you know, who also consider this, like, all of our accomplishments. And it's so easy to forget when the narrative is constantly controlled by uh, either like the media of whatever country you're in or your family, which, you know, and I, that's just such a, uh, like, it, it's, it's an obvious thing to know, but it's, it's not as obvious to like always remember and just like keep within yourself that it, it's like the international space station, not the right. Russian American right. space station. Yeah. Um, so thank Easy you to for lose that. sight of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, and thank you so much again. That's incredible.
0: All right. Well, um, so thank you, Nagi. This has been so much fun. I hope you'll come on again and and talk to us more about the rover projects as that goes forward and how it's going and, like, you know, there's so much more to explore,
1: literally. Absolutely. Oh, and I will make a plug for the next Mars rover. Yes. Uh, called Perseverance. I mean, who knew that that was going to be such an applicable name? So we are launching. Our launch window opens on July seventeenth. So uh, coming right month, up. Yes. So we exciting. launch next month from the Cape, and we are on track to, So our window goes from like uh, July seventeenth to about August eleventh, and uh, some. So somewhere in that window, we will we will be launching to Mars and then landing on February eighteenth. 2021 so Amazing. here we go again you know it's always uh it, you know just because you've done it once doesn't mean it's going to work launch and landing there's there's so, so much much risk. yeah so much risk and, and so hopefully you know this time uh, uh around this time next year after we get off mars time hopefully there'll be um happy stories to tell uh from the latest landing
0: next time on hearthside salons Singer, songwriter, and actress Durga McBroom has performed backing vocals for Pink Floyd and is a member of the house music band Blue Pearl, best known for their hit single, Naked in the Rain. She's also a badass and an activist who speaks out against racism around the world. Never one to shy away from a challenge, Durga finds this unrest a great time to be a passionate creative. Join us. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept-to-pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out PageCraftWriting.com, at PageCraftWriting on Instagram, and at PageCraftWrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from PageCraft. Thanks for listening, and stay well.